Jim, thanks so much for hosting us here today at Trava. Welcome to the circuit. Well, it's Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming. Welcome to Trava. Thank you. So first off, can you tell us a little bit more about what Trava is at a high level? Who do you serve? Um, what do you do? Sure. So let's start with who do we serve, because I think that's one of the unique things about Trava. You know, at the highest level, we're in the cybersecurity space. Yep. Let's start there, right? So what's unique about us? What's unique about us is we serve mid-market and small and medium-sized businesses. Of the thousands and thousands of cybersecurity companies out there, they're all dreaming someday of selling to the enterprise. Salesforce, Microsoft, Google, something like that, right? Not us. Our reason for being is to make mid-market, small and medium-sized businesses more secure. So how do we do that? Recognizing that that audience is unique and that they don't have full-time security people, they don't have a chief security information officer, mm -hmm. they need an easy-to-understand and easy-to-use tool, but they also need people and expertise. Mm -hmm. And the two have to go together. And that's the secret sauce of Trava. So it's mid-2020. Um, there are so many cybersecurity products out there. What did you see in the market at that time? And you said, hey, now's the time. So it, it really was a combination of things. Okay. And, and it, it comes back from a couple of experiences that I had and some things going on in the market. So part of my background was I was with the FBI. I was a task force officer with the FBI Cybercrime Task Force. And when I was there, what I found in the investigations that I did that when an enterprise scale company had an issue, you know, they might take a hit on their brand for a while, they'd hire a PR firm, their stock price may go down for a while, inevitably they were fine. It was quite the opposite with mid-market and small and medium-sized businesses. There not only did the business often suffer devastated financial results, mm -hmm. but also the principal or the co-owner or, you know, the co-founder suffered personally as well. And that always bothered me. And, and so what we wanted to do was we wanted to find a way to, to bring a solution to that market. And the other thing that happened, yeah, the other thing that happened was at the same time, we had the cyber insurance industry yeah. really bursting onto the scene. Ransomware was getting started. And yet there was this total disconnect between cyber risk management on the one hand, yeah. which is a relatively new industry, right? And cyber insurance being done the same way that every other line of insurance had been done for 200 years. Yeah. So what we said was, well, wait a minute, those two are inextricably linked, but no one seems to be linking them together. Yeah. So what if we did cyber risk management more effectively, especially for mid-market and, and small and medium-sized businesses, and in so doing, we have the data. We can prove that they actually are secure. They actually have properly mitigated their risks, and therefore they are a good risk for cyber insurance because they were not able to get cyber insurance previously. So you saw the convergence. We saw the convergence, and, and what we knew was the thing that tied those two very disparate industries together was data. Mm -hmm. So at the heart of it, Trava's a data company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the data that we that is our currency, that's how we talk about it, is cyber risk data. So in the past year, you've seen huge momentum. You've raised three and a half, no, three and a half million dollars. Um, you've been honored as a great place to work through, I believe, the great employers list. 
and you're also a member of the Forbes Technology Council. Mm -hmm. What do you attribute all this success to? Um, I, I, you know, High Alpha, when, when they start a company, they give you seven kind of key metrics to get traction. And one of the early ones that I never quite understood and I found difficult to measure, they called it virality, like going viral. When do you start going viral? When do people let you know they've heard about you as opposed to you knocking on someone's door? And so I, I think what's happened is for a variety of reasons, some of which you know, you've already mentioned, we've started to go viral. And it's almost like you can see the difference. You can point to the point on the curve where we started to go viral. That's awesome. That's, that's awesome. That's a fun ride to be on as yeah, well. Yeah. In a two-year period. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. So, because um, you didn't start out in tech. Well, I, actually, I did. Okay. It's well, just, I've, I've been at we it. Go. Well, then, then let, let, let's take another shot at that <laughs> okay. question, because I had you originally starting out in academia. Yeah. So. Director of MIS for a couple of companies, management information systems. They didn't call yeah. them CIOs back then for a couple of companies on the East Coast. Those companies happened to be widely distributed. Okay. Now, this was before the days of the internet, before the days of TCPIP. Okay. Like things called um, mini computers. So not mainframes, but mini computers, deck vaxes, yeah. et cetera, were the rage. And so the, there was a necessity, but very few people. So it was against the law still to hook a, a modem to the phone network, believe it or not. And so very few people knew how to get a computer, computers to talk to each other over long distances. So I, that was the beginning of network engineering. Yeah. And so I was one of the people that figured that out. That's, when I, that's why I took the job at Purdue. They had a faculty opening for to teach one course in what at the time they called data communications. And... and that, you know, so that's the faculty position I applied for, I got. And then we ended up building the network engineering degree program right. out of that. Right. That's what brought me to Purdue. But I didn't st I'm not an academic. I, I hated it there. <laughs> so you started your career out in tech on the East Coast. Yes. Building a, a new system in a, in a new type of technology. Networking computers together, right. And then Purdue saw you and said, hey, we have to have this guy because we're trying to do something similar. Right, right. And so then I built there. Now, it was a brand new field. Like, there were no college textbooks. So this is my style. It's like I do things that haven't been done before, and I don't take no for an answer, right? There were no college textbooks. So I wrote eight college textbooks wow. in what at the time was called Applied Data Communications. Yeah. yeah. So from... Purdue ended up staying in Indiana, mm -hmm. and what happens next? Well, um, so I started the cyber forensics program there, and then I started doing some research in, in reverse engineering malware. Mm -hmm. uh, and the FBI was trying to build their capability in that particular discipline at the same time. They heard about the research I was doing, and they paid me a visit and asked me if I would get a top-secret security clearance, which I did. And so then I went to work for the FBI for five years as a task force officer in the FBI Cybercrime Task Force, and I served as a lead cyber investigator on both criminal and national security 
cyber squads for the FBI. Wow. wow. That must have been just an awesome experience. Um, you have no idea. <laughs> generally, when somebody's on the FBI's radar, it's not a good thing. But you were on their radar for a good reason, because well, they needed your expertise. Yeah, that's why I always kind of half smirk when I say, and then the FBI came to see me. Because generally, you're not happy when the FBI comes to see you. <laughs> Tell me what you can share just about that role and working with them and some, some high points and just some things. That yeah, it, it was super fulfilling. It really was. I, I mean, it gives you a glimpse inside a federal agency that few people ever get to see. And I was just so impressed with how bright and how dedicated the people are. You know what I mean? And it's not like they make a lot of money. They, they do it because they're just so dedicated to what they're doing. It really was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, you know, I I wasn't an agent. I didn't go through, you know, Quantico, the training, but they treated me as if I was part of the team. You know, the fun part was, you know, I went through firearms training and all the other kind of stuff. And, and I mean, the, the nice thing was, like, if I was the lead investigator on a case, right, and then, you know, it turns out, you know, what we were able to identify who was involved, where they are, et cetera, et cetera. And we put together an operation. Then I went on the operation because I was the lead investigator. I was part of the interview process mm -hmm. to say, yeah, this, this is really what we thought we'd find. And we found it. And, yeah, you did it because I know you did it. Yeah. They leaned on you from start to finish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah they plucked you out of... The Purdue and yeah. really leaned on you as yeah. they yeah. built both civil and criminal cases, it yeah. seems like. Yeah, well, national security. And national so security cases. People breaking into government agencies. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. What exciting work. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Very fulfilling. Yeah. Tech early in your career, coming to the Midwest, being at Purdue, then to the FBI, and then there's another chapter. Right. That runs into exact target. Yeah. And so back to tech. Yeah. I mean, the thread's unbelievable. So here's the here, here's kind of the other thread through the whole thing. So I, I've had enough of higher ed at Purdue and I, I want to get back to industry. I'm, you know, exact target. You're hearing the headlines about exact target up and coming, et cetera, et cetera. And they've got an opening for their, you know, they're growing. They want to move international in terms of sales and up into sell to the enterprise. And so they post an opening for their first vice president of information security. So I come to the interview, and lo and behold, I'm interviewing with a former student. <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah, that's what I mean. So the whole thing just ties together. And, and so I get hired, and so I'm now working for a former student. Yeah. 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 And who I worked for for years at Salesforce. And Actually, he's now with Zylo, so we're still working together. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, you know, I became the first vice president of information security for Exact Target. Um, you know, did what we needed to do to build a sophisticated, get an international certification in security because they wanted to sell internationally. Yep. Uh, that was 2011. Then in 2013, we were acquired by Salesforce. When did you join? When did I join? Yeah, August exactly. of two, August of 2011. Okay. Yeah. So you were riding that wave to right. 2013. Right. Yes. Yeah. Exact target. Salesforce in the beginning. 
you ended up coming back because there was such a critical need for what you do. Right. And you had to fill that for Salesforce um, because it was necessary as they made this acquisition, but it continued to scale the business. Right. So talk to me about a little bit about some of the stuff you continued to do for them um, when you came back and as you were there. Well, you know, Salesforce grows and grew and continues to grow largely by acquisition. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they've, they've got these general clouds, right? So I was in the marketing cloud. The exact target was the foundation of the marketing cloud. But they continued to buy other acquisitions and just say, you're not part of the marketing cloud. Yeah. So every time they did that, we had to look at that organization and say, okay, what's their infrastructure? Mm-hmm. You know, what's their security posture? What's their compliance maturity, mm-hmm. et cetera? and take them from wherever, wherever they are to where they needed to be. You played a key part in that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yep. What year did you end up leaving Salesforce? Uh, December of 2019. December of 2019. Right. So um, a little more than a year later, uh, you got the entrepreneurial bug to start an organization. Well, it's less than that. It was a matter of months. So actually in February of 2020, okay. I got a call from Scott Dorsey who I'd always stayed in touch with, and they were doing a sprint week. You're, I'm sure you're very yep. familiar with the high alpha sprint weeks. And so um, a fellow named Matt Bressler from TDF Ventures in Chevy Chase, Maryland, had come with basically two years of research on this convergence of cyber risk management and cyber insurance that they'd been looking into but hadn't been able to coalesce it into a company or find co-founders, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so Matt kind of got the okay from his organization to come and run it through the high alpha sprint week. Oh, wow. So Matt Bressler and Scott Dorsey teamed up in sprint week with this concept. And the way, high, the, way the sprint week works is on Thursday of the sprint week, you're supposed to have enough of a concept that you can pitch it to an outside industry expert and say, what do you think? Is there something here or not? So Scott gives me a call, says, hey, do you have an hour on Thursday? I'd like to introduce you to Matt Bressler and run this idea by you. So I said, sure. I actually happen to be downtown. So I came in, we met at their building. They were still in the circle and um, they start pitching, you know, the idea and you know, being the former college professor, I'm immediately at the whiteboard drawing Venn diagrams and data flow diagrams. Yeah. And then I'll never forget it. I had the dry erase marker in my hand and I turned and I pointed it at Scott Dorsey. I said, Scott, I want to run this company for you. And the rest is history. <laughs> well, Scott's a smart man. It's not like you said, sure, Jim, the company's <laughs> yours. <laughs> and there were many steps, but yeah, eventually, yes. You, in that moment when you had the dry erase board, was it a culmination of that work you'd done at the FBI at other places? Exactly you said, this right. This problem has to be solved. Exactly right. And I knew they were, I knew that, you know, I'd sort of had the same idea, right? And I knew this was the, it, it, it was just, it was like the right time, the right idea, the right place. It was like, no, th- this is perfect. This is what I need to do next. Is that convergence? Right. Plus, you're really the focus. And a big part of what Travis focused on is small businesses. And Bingo. you talk a lot about that. Bingo, yeah. Um, um, what's a bit of the difference? So just 
you talked a little bit about with your FBI background, but working with large enterprises compared to those small businesses. So like what's, what are some of the largest differences you see when they're impacted by a cyber mm-hmm. attack? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first thing is they don't have the expertise in-house. I mean, that's the most glaring difference, right? And, and so, you know, cyber risk management, it starts with prevention, right? And, the, and then it's detection, and then it's response, and then it's recovery, et cetera. Well, most small and medium-sized businesses don't even get to the prevention step, mm-hmm. right? And, and so they're just plain ill-prepared. And, um, you know, sometimes they have their head buried in the sand. It's like they, they don't want to know. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they're forced to know. Sometimes they find out the hard way. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's different in every circumstance. <clears throat> you know, where, where we work best is with companies that are aware they need to do something, but they don't know what that first step is. That, that's like all we need as an entry point. All we need as a prerequisite is you've recognized the fact that you have a problem. That has to be a really gratifying journey because you're helping folks that are small and medium-sized business owners solve a critical problem. It's only getting mm-hmm. larger. Mm-hmm. Well, another big satisfaction comes when, you know, our, our, our customers get compliments and kudos from their customers. So we've had customers that we've helped on their security journey that have since been acquired, right, by much bigger companies. Those bigger companies come in and say, wow, we're really impressed with the sophistication of your security and compliance program, given how young or relatively small you are. Like that, you know, we take a lot of pride in those kind of, even though we lose them as a customer, <laughs> we take a lot of pride in that. But Trav is a key piece on that journey. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point. It's helping yeah. companies grow and uh, be mature before they're even expected to be mature. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and it's that's a differentiator for them. Yep. They stand out from their competition. Yep. And actually, you know, it helps their sales cycle as well. Yep. You know, because, the, the, you know, they start the conversation, normal kind of vendor risk management. Well, tell us about your security program. And, and then their potential customers are going, really? 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 You have that in place? Really? Wow. Smooths it right along. Yeah, exactly. You have been in this industry for um, several years, starting in tech, going to academia, working with students that eventually became uh, both um, folks you're working with in industry and Colleagues. maybe folks you're hiring. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Wh- I have a former, a former student as a senior vice president of ours. Really? Cindy Goyer, former student, senior awesome. vice president. Yep. That's awesome. What are some of the big issues on the horizon that both business owners should be aware of, small and large, um, but also individuals, just around cybersecurity and risk? So a certain phrase comes to mind, and I've delivered a keynote, well, actually more than one keynote address on it, and, and, and it's this. And I don't mean to sound alarmist because I'm being 100% truthful when I say this. It's not cybercrime. It's cyber warfare. We, we, as the United States, as the United States economy, are literally being attacked. The problem is... Not enough people realize it, don't want to realize it. They want to look at it as random, isolated, a little crime here, a little crime here. It'll never affect me, et cetera, et cetera. From my work at the FBI and since, I can tell you 
it's not random acts of criminal activity. Yeah. It is cyber warfare. Um, so it's the aggregation of those points that um, are starting to add up in different ways. Well, and, and it's almost like we haven't seen the big event yet. It's like we've seen this little thing over here, this little thing over here. But it's like, have we seen isolated events where hospitals and healthcare systems have been shut down by ransomware? Yes. Have we seen fuel distribution systems been shut down? Yes. Have we seen public utility grids, electrical grids shut down? Yes. Have we seen waterworks and sewage treatment plants been shut down? Yes. Have we seen airport systems been attacked? Yes. Each of those things are like, you know, random events over the last several years. What if every one of those things I just said happened simultaneously? Not a good, not a good, not, not a, a good, good scenario. Yeah. Are we ready for that? I'm not so sure. Yeah. Because we as a society have not collectively owned the truth of the situation, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this sector says, well, that's the government's responsibility. This sector says, well, that's business's responsibility. Everybody's expecting somebody else to fix the problem. And the fact is, we collectively, as Americans, all own this problem. Every single one of us. It's like, it sounds silly, it sounds like a joke, but the fact that your refrigerator is connected to the internet and that your ring doorbell is connected to the internet, you're part of the solution, part of the problem. I have both of those things. And you That's just, my I, point and, exactly. I, I just, just got a nice washer and dryer that connects to the internet as well. Um, exactly. <laughs> exactly. One question I do want to ask you, you grew up on the East Coast, went to school out there. Obviously, you're a Midwesterner. You're yeah. here. Um, you've been all over the world in uh, the work you've done. But you made a decision to, to grow your company in Indy, mm -hmm. in Indiana. Mm -hmm. Why'd you do that? Um, when, when people ask me, okay, describe the Indiana business environment or especially the tech environment, I, I often use the phrase one degree of separation. Um, you know, you hear the joke about Kevin Bacon and six degrees of separation. In Indy, the in, especially in the Indiana tech community, it's one degree of separation, which means if, if you don't know somebody, you absolutely know somebody who knows that person. And it, in some ways, that's exactly the right size. Now, the other thing is we are a high-integrity people. That's the Midwest thing because of that one degree of separation, you can't afford to have a bad reputation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I absolutely it's like mean. It, is yeah. so, it is so easy to do business here. It's so collaborative. Right. Yeah. And it, it's almost like uh, we we collectively know that, you know, we're always in a fight with either coast. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and so it's like we're not really competitors or if we are, we're still trying to help each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's just this sort of 
attitude that's a little bit hard to describe that's marvelous out here. Yeah. And it's not just Indianapolis. I mean, one of the, you know, M25 out of Chicago is one of our investors, Victor Gutwein's the managing director there. He's just terrific. And, and they concentrate only on the Midwest. Yeah. Special. There's a lot of yeah. special things going on here. Yeah, exactly. We're tapping into that. Right, right. And with your background as well, just in education, I mean, you've seen the, the top flight schools that exist in the Midwest, mm-hmm. exist in Indiana. Exactly. Um, have the ability to hire some of those folks. Well, well, that's a big difference. So I started at Purdue in 1991. And the thing we talked about then was the Indiana brain drain, because especially at Purdue, we were educating these great Indiana kids and they were going to, some went to Chicago, but most of them went to either of the coasts to get their employment. They were leaving, you know, they were leaving the state because there was no tech opportunity for them. I think we've really turned that around. I agree with you. Over the last 15 years or so, uh, Indy and Indiana, it's a a different place. Yeah, exactly. In a good way. In a good way. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I did, as I was preparing for this interview, one of the things uh, that I looked at that's really a key of your culture is laughing. And I love that. Tell me more about why. So um, it's kind of funny. When when we hired our, when Rob Beeler and myself hired our first employee and they were about to be onboarded, even though it was like, you know, we, we were about to become a three-person company, we said, okay, we need to think about onboarding. And, and people might have laughed at that, right? But I said, no, we really need to think about this. And, and we need a, a deck, like an onboarding deck. Yeah. And we really need to think about our values. And, and it's actually one of the things that Rob and I bonded about. And so Rob's got 30 years of software engineering experience, small companies, large companies, yeah. good companies, bad companies, a lot like me. Yeah. And so the good thing about having two old guys running the company is they know what's really important at this point, and they really don't care what anybody thinks, yeah. okay? And so we wanted a set of values that really reflected what we had learned, in some cases, the hard way over the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. And what did we want this company to be? And, and so, um, yeah, we came up with these values. And, you know, we, I, I've, it's just my personality. It's like life is too short, you know, not to have a good laugh every now and then. And, um yeah, so so we decided one of our values is we believe that laughter makes us more productive. And, you know, every team uh, in the company is welcome to implement that value however they wish. So our service delivery team, we have a service delivery stand-up, 15-minute stand-up three times a week to talk about what's going on with all our customers. Yeah. Starts with a joke. <laughs> every every stand up starts with a joke, but it's got to be like a cyber nerdy joke. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. Give us your best joke. Oh boy! Why did the cyber criminal? Uh, why why did the cyber criminal not get away with his cyber crime? I have no idea. Because it ran somewhere. <laughs> I'm going to start coming to your stand-ups because I love jokes. So, And I think I got that wrong because it was funnier the first time. <laughs> All I remember is the punchline. I like it. I like it, Jim. I like it. Um, in preparation of this, we read that 
when you first started at Purdue in 1991, um, you proposed teaching an independent study around network security, and you were laughed at for mm-hmm. it and called paranoid. Right. Tell me more about that. Well, it, you know, I just I have this uncanny knack to I've, I've been told I connect dots that others don't see. Right. And so I thought, no, this is a thing. This yeah. is important. And, yeah, you know, it's not the first time I was called paranoid. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like my contention about this is not cybercrime. This is cyber warfare. Someone would say, oh, that's just Goldman being paranoid again. I'm not so sure. Like they said that when I first started talking about network security, and it's a $600 billion a year industry now. Yeah. You're ahead of your time. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to leave us with about Trava, about trends we should be aware of, um, or anything you want to help, want to get across? <clears throat> like I was saying, I, I hesitate this because in case my investors hear it, but, um, you know, we hope we make money because we're supposed to, but that's not our primary mission is to do whatever we need to do provide free education, free seminars, whatever, to help small, medium-sized business owners, mid-market business owners reduce their cyber risk and, you know, um, protect their companies from cybercrime. We'll do whatever we can. We'll talk to anybody anytime about that. If we make some money along the way, great. But our mission is really that. You have a true passion for just awareness, uh, helping folks solve those critical problems. Remember this. Two out of every three new jobs in the United States come from small and medium-sized businesses. So people say, well, small, medium-sized business, how big a deal is that? It's 66% of the United States economy, folks. How do we get more folks that have worked in large companies like you in leadership levels where you see all these trends, you see all these things that could be a business. Mm. How do we continue to get them to take the next step to act on that and to start that business? Boy, it's scary. It's, you know, well, let me say a couple of things. It's A, it's not for everybody, right? Everybody's not made to start a business. So there's that. But B... You know, you have to be at a certain point in your life and a certain point in your career. You know, Rob and I are where we are now able to do this and start this company because of the careers that we've had, yeah. right? You have to be at a certain point in your career, literally in order to be able to afford to do something like this. So it's not for your average young person, you know, with a young family, yeah. that kind of thing. But the sad part is, and I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but I'm sure you could find them out. Most older Americans are being pushed out of companies. You know, they're they're not valued. And yet, at the same time, there there isn't, um, you know, a program ready and available and awareness to say, oh, no, you know, we definitely need you right here, right now, yeah. you know, to to start this company. To Yeah, we've got an entrepreneur here, but they're, 
you know, in their 30s, and we really need you, you know, in your early 60s to kind of come alongside and mentor them yeah. because you've been through this, you know, throughout your career. I think it's an incredible wasted resource in the United States to have people that have gone through these incredible careers. They get pushed out the door and then nothing. Sounds like we have some work to do in that spot, though. No, don't you think? I absolutely yeah, think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Rob and I were lucky. High Alpha decided to take a chance on a couple of old guys, but, you know, not everybody's so lucky. Jim, I enjoyed this. Is there anything else you want to add or anything else that I, that I should have asked here? So uh, I gave a, a talk at the Powder Keg event a, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and it was totally extemporaneous. And I talked about what travel was and how we're different. It was a little bit about where I started that for the target audience that we're going after, you have to have the product, but you have to have the people because they don't have the people. And what I said was our product is great, but our people are spectacular. And that's really the essence of what travel is all about. That's why we've had the success we've had. Makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Jim, thanks for letting us interview you today. Thanks for being on the circuit, and uh, good luck. We wish you the best. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you.